And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Todd. <clears throat> you have your Bible open, open to Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. For those of you who have been with us, uh, at least for this fall, we've been uh, working our way through Philippians since about September. I think it was uh, middle part of September. We started working our way through the book of Philippians, and now we're nearing the end of it. So next week will be our final message in uh, Philippians uh, before we move on to whatever's next. And, um, well, I'll just tell you because I know you're anxious. Well, what's next? Uh, Malachi. Uh, Malachi, and you, some of you are like, that's not a book in the Bible. Yes, uh, it's, it's the easiest Old Testament book to find because all you got to do is find Matthew and go back one. It's so far into the Old Testament, it's almost in the New Testament. That's how I like to think about it. It's a really short book, so today, uh, before you fall asleep on the couch, you could probably read that guy in a, about 20 minutes. So if you want to get ahead of the game, you can jump into Malachi. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. How did the Philippian people come to encounter the truth and power of the gospel. And you can go into the book of Acts and you can find uh, the, the story. So I'm going to sum up. I'm going to sum up here what happened. Paul and some of his friends went to the city of Philippi with an intention of sharing the gospel with people there. And their strategy was they went down by the river where they anticipated to find a place of prayer, which was common in the cities of that time as there would be a place of prayer uh, people are praying to all kinds of different gods, but there would be a place of prayer. So Paul and his companions went down to uh, the place by the river where there might be a place of prayer, and they engaged in conversation with some women of the city of Philippi, and several of them uh, became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted him to forgive their sins by faith. And so their ministry in the city began. Then as it's going on, Paul is spending time in the city sharing the gospel with people in the market and sharing gospel with people in synagogue and sharing gospel just some people he runs into on the street. And uh, there is a, a girl following him around, and the Bible tells us she was possessed by a demon, and she was screaming and yelling uh, things that were very disruptive. And so this goes on for several days, and Paul finally turns around uh, to this uh, girl and uh, commands the demon to, to leave her. And so the, the demon leaves her by the power of Christ, and she is freed from this uh, demonic oppression. And um, as a result, the people who owned her because she was a slave would use her for fortune-telling. They realized their source of income was gone, and so they drummed up a whole bunch of anger at Paul and his uh, companions, and they were arrested. They were arrested, and they were beaten, and they were thrown into jail, Right? So they're sitting in jail, having been beaten, and something happens, and all the doors of the jail open. Now, that's a bad thing if you're the guard in the jail. So the guard in the jail decides the only reasonable thing to do if you're the guard of a Roman jail and the Roman jail is no longer secure, he says, I'm going to kill myself. It's better I do it than the Romans do it because they will do it. They'll just do it slower. And so I'll do it faster. And he was about to kill himself when Paul says, don't care yourself, we're all here. Take and roll. Nobody left. Nobody walked out the open doors of the prison. And the guard responds, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And so the Philippian jailer gets saved. Now that's really sort of the end of the story, but the next part's sort of my favorite part, so I'm going to add it. So the next day they come in and they are going to let Paul go and he says, I don't think so. I'm a Roman citizen. 
you arrested me and beat me without a trial. You're going to walk me out to jail, and you're going to tell everybody I was innocent. And they said, yes, sir. They walked him out to jail. Anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel part of it, but I really like that part of the story. (laughs) So what we learn about the people in Philippi is they are near and dear to Paul's heart for a number of reasons. Number one, at the very beginning of their time knowing one another, they went through some of the most difficult things you could imagine. Persecution, danger, uh, questions of life and whether or not it's going to continue. Challenges that people face in a marginalized culture in the midst of a culture that worships the emperor. And so from the very beginning, the gospel was all they had to hope in. Because there was no other hopes. Because there was no telling if tomorrow was going to actually occur or not. And they had this in common. And this bond of friendship uh, was special between Paul and the Philippians. In fact, he says in the chapter, in the section that Paul read, there was something in particular between Paul and the Philippians that was even more so than any of the other churches that he had relationships with. He had a friendship that was in the gospel, in Christ alone. They both had hope only in Christ alone, and that's what bonded them together. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is sharing the gospel, but not in the way you're hearing. When I say share the gospel, you assume You take a gospel track out on the street, you hand it to a person, and talk to them until they punch you in the nose, right? That that is sharing the gospel, but what we're talking about here, and I'm using that phrase just to get you to think, is sharing the gospel, meaning what do I have in common with my fellow brothers and sisters? We share what together? We share the gospel. A sharing of the gospel together, the, the, the primary and most significant commonality between believers is the hope of the gospel. So just a couple of different things on that uh, as a way of summarizing this. So sharing the gospel together, first of all, the gift of friendship. Let me read again uh, verses 15 and 16. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, what's the beginning of the gospel? I just told you that whole story. Weren't you listening? That's why I told you it. When I left Macedonia, just quick, that's the area that Philippi is, No church entered in a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Sharing the gospel, the gift of friendship. Uh, A common phrase that you've probably heard many, many times. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Of course, nobody really knows what that means. What do you mean a friend in need? It might mean a number of things, but what we, we, we should imagine that it likely means, at least one thing it means is, when you are in need, you discover who your friends are. That's one thing that is true. When you are in need, when all of a sudden you don't bring anything to the table in terms of uh, resources, time, energy, skills, or whatever, now you start to discover who your friends are. Uh, Because when you have need, uh, those who aren't really friends, who are only connected with you because of what you uh, provide, uh, they sort of become very busy all of a sudden. When a person is in need... They discover who their friends are, and Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, I, what we have in common is how we have mutually shared with one another. We have both been in significant need, and we have both shared significantly with one another, so we have a gift of friendship in the gospel that is profound and important, a gospel friendship. Here's a unique part uh, or a significant facet of what it means to have friendships in the gospel. When you have a friend, uh, I'm assuming you have friends. Uh, if you don't, um, raise your hand. We'll, we'll get people connected. I don't know. We, you should. You come to church, you should have friends. Uh, so here, here's what, for, you got a friend, you meet somebody, and you, you chat it up, you say, oh, and all of a sudden you have something in common. Oh, you like this football team. Oh, you do that for fun on the weekends. Oh, that's your profession. That's also my profession. Oh, well, let's get together and have coffee, and then all of a sudden you have some points of commonality, right? The point of commonality in gospel friendships is Christ. So what's unique about friendships in the gospel is their commonality is Jesus, and their resource is Jesus, and in many ways their focus is Jesus. And that's what's unique about the friendship Paul is talking about with the Philippian believers. We have a friendship, but the friendship actually is a friendship of three people. You, me, and Christ. 
And that's a unique way of thinking about friendship because what that means, if the friendship is a connection of individuals with Christ as the focal point, that friendship is on ground that will last forever. Whereas if you have friendship that's based on common interests, as it turns out, sometimes things you're interested in today, you're not interested in next week. And as those interests fade or the ability to pursue those interests fade, those friendships fade. And Paul is saying about the Philippian believers, we've had Christ in common from the beginning, in the middle, and the end. That means we have a significant friendship that's a part of sharing the gospel together. Look how he describes their friendship at the end of verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He describes the Philippian church, the believers in Philippi, as gospel partners. Gospel partners, meaning they have a friendship where they're sharing with and for one another, and they mutually bear one another's burdens over time. They have a goal, and the goal is not focused on themselves as an individual. Their goal in their friendship is how do we know Christ? How do we serve Christ? How do we pursue Christ's interests together in partnership? How did that show up in Paul's life? In this particular letter, what he's saying is, I'm in jail, and you have just sent me resources so I can buy food, I can buy clothing, I can pay rent. We've mentioned this before. Roman jails are a little bit different than modern-day jails. When you were arrested, you were expected to take care of your own needs. Buy your own food, make sure you had clothes and bedding. Sometimes you would maybe even charge you rent for your time in prison. And, of course, you couldn't leave jail, though, to work to pay for these things. If you didn't pay for these things, your time in jail would be very, very difficult. And so you would need friends and family who would help provide for your needs while you were in prison. And so what Paul is saying to the people in Philippi, you have provided for my needs in prison. You have been in partnership with the gospel with me in prison. And he said that friendship is not the basis of a financial transaction. It's on the basis of a mutual shared burden to pursue that friendship in connection with Christ together. He calls it a partnership of giving and receiving. So what did he receive in this moment? He had received some stuff. He'd received some money to buy food. He'd probably received maybe some clothing and some bedding. He maybe had received some resources to be able to write letters. Paper is very expensive. Ink is very expensive. They might have provided him some of those things to continue his correspondence. So they provided him stuff. What has he provided to them? Well, think about it. What, why is he in jail? Talking on a cell phone in the car? Probably not. Probably not. He's in jail because he's a believer, right? So then he writes a letter to a bunch of Christians from a Roman jail in which he's in jail because he's a Christian. How much danger does it put Paul in to send this letter out to jail? A lot. It, it, it's risky for him to continue to expound on the glories of Christ. It's risky for him to be sharing the gospel with the Roman centurion that's chained to him. New Roman shows up. He's wet behind the ear. He's new on the job. Chain him to Paul. That guy never shuts up. Hook him up to Paul. Paul goes off on a gospel tirade. Tells him all about Jesus and how to get saved. And the Roman centurion says, dude, do you understand why you're in this jail? You might want to simmer down on the whole gospel thing. But he has no interest. So what Paul, the partnership he is bringing to this relationship is continuing with the Philippian believers in the midst of difficulty or in the midst of comfort to continue to partner together in sharing the gospel. He's sharing this also with them in Philippi where they faced persecution. There was a huge emperor cult worship system in Philippi, and to worship someone other than the emperor in Philippi was dangerous. And he's partnering with them and saying, I'm with you in the danger. And so they share the gospel together, and the result of that gospel shared between them results in a partnership between them where they are mutually depending on one another to provide for one another's needs, physically, uh, financially, spiritually, in relationship together, bearing up one another. And look how far the Philippian believers went. Look at verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. The believers in Philippi were unique. 
Not all the churches, in fact, it appears that very few of the churches, if any other than Philippi, actually supported Paul financially. Sometimes the churches couldn't support Paul financially because they didn't have the resources. That's likely the case of the churches in Thessalonica. They were broke, and they didn't have any means to support Paul financially. And Paul is saying, when I was in Thessalonica, the the Philippines, you try this. Laughing at him. The Philippians uh, helped underwrite some of the costs that he had that the Thessalonians were not able to abide by. Now, then he went over to the church in Corinth, and they got dollar bills, yo. They're stacked up. They take $100 bills to level out their tables. That one leg that's shorter than the other one, they roll up $100 bills and stuff it under there. That's how they start their fires. They use $100 bills to light their $1,000 bills on fire in the fireplace. You don't think I'm kidding. And what did Paul say to them when they came out with a big old check? I don't want your money. I'm going to get a job. So he refused the Corinthian support because he knew they didn't want to have a gospel relationship. They just wanted to write checks because it didn't really cost them anything because they had so much. The Philippian believers were unique. He said, we have a a back-and-forth relationship where we are connected by the gospel and we share in a gift of friendship the mutual burden of carrying one another to the finish line. And that was unique to this church in, in Philippi. And what we need to take away from that is we want friendships like that. We want friendships that are defined by the gospel. But here's a couple of things about gospel friendships. Number one, gospel friendships cost something. Gospel friendships, friendships defined by a connection between people that where the common point is Christ are costly. They're substantive, but they're costly, but not always money, in fact, rarely. Usually it's time. Oftentimes it's patience. Let's remind ourselves of the gospel. What does the gospel say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's in the all? That's the everybody. That's everybody's a sinner. And you're the worst one. Everybody's the worst, but that means you get to be the worst. I'm also the worst, but it's not a competition. Okay, we're not competing here. Okay. So all of sin falls short of the glory of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we had great potential, not because we were figuring it out, not because we were really, really, really sorry. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Philippian jailer, how then shall I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't of yourself, so that no one can boast. So stop your boasting. And then we have a hope. If Christ is raised, we will be raised with him. So here's the gospel. Sinners being saved by Christ so that he can make them whole and one day raise them from the dead. Did that cost Christ anything? Yes. So if we are going to have friendships that are defined by Christ, then those friendships will be, by definition, costly because you're going to have friends who aren't very good because they're going to have sin issues that you're going to have to forgive them for. They're going to need time. They're going to need you to pray for them. They're going to need you to uh, help them. Friendships that are based on the gospel are not mutually beneficial. Friendships that are based on the gospel are mutually costly. The benefit we get is not from one another primarily, it's from Christ. That's how gospel friendships work. You and I can afford to give each other everything because Christ has already given us everything. Now, this is very different than how modern culture defines friendships and how you and I, as a part of that modern culture, define friendships. Friendships are defined by two people who have several points of common interest, several points of common value, and that friendship is mutually beneficial. It brings benefit, joy, happiness, all these sorts of things. And that's great. I got no problem with that. But that's not primarily how gospel friendships are defined. People who are pursuing substantive friendships by saying, what does it like, look like to serve others in a costly way. And you say, well, that sounds like a real pain. I don't know if I want those kinds of friendships. Nobody does. But that's why you need to have Christ. That's why these these kinds of connections, as Paul is describing with the Philippian believers, 
are only possible if a person has actually inherited eternal life from Christ. Because a friendship can cost me everything if I know I've already inherited everything. Substantive, costly, yet full of joy friendships defined by the gospel. Okay, let's keep moving along. Look at verse 17. Look what he says. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. A couple of things here that are a little bit different than what we're used to. One of the things that's uh, important about friendships and relationships in the first century when Paul is writing, it was the normal way of thinking is that friendships are reciprocal. It's the normal way of thinking. So if uh, somebody came over and you said, well, I need a little help chopping the tree down in my front yard. You hold the rope, I'll run the chainsaw, something like that. Uh, and so you, they help you out for that. Say they give you four hours, they work for that. It would be normal for them to think in their mind. It wouldn't even be a bad thing. It would be normal for them to think in their mind, he owes me four hours. That's, it, and it, it's not a bad thing. It's just you know, at some point you're going to get a call. Hey, bro, you owe me four. See you Saturday morning. And the guy would say, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. So what he's doing is using that cultural understanding and saying, I can think that same way in relation to the friendships that I have with the people in Philippi. And he says, listen, I am not seeking the gift. He says in verse 17, I don't need your money. But having been well supplied, I want God to credit to your account what you have given to me. I want you to receive the benefit of how you have served me in your friendship. And I want that benefit to come from God himself. Somebody has said once that you can tell what somebody values by looking at two things. You can tell by what somebody values by looking at two things. You know what those are? One is a checkbook. What's the other one? Your calendar. How you spend your time and how you spend your money tells us, uh, tells yourself when you're looking at it. I don't have access to your calendar. Um, what you value. You can say what you value all day long. I value this, 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 and this. What you actually value is defined by what you spend your time doing and what you spend your money on. And what Paul is saying, he says, I see, Philippians, what you value. You value a partnership that's in the gospel, and I want you to receive the value from God of that, uh, that heartfelt movement of the gospel. So he says, I'm not, just, I'm not seeking your money. I'm seeking that you might have in your credit the fruit of the gospel in uh, your life. So sharing the gospel, we said first the gift of friendship. This is the gift of help. Sharing the gospel together, the gift of help. What Paul wants them to understand and what we need to understand is the nature of the friendship they had in the gospel was more important than the gift that represented that friendship. So the connection he had with the Philippian believers in Christ, excuse me, far exceeded the value of what he had received from them in support. He said, yeah, yes, I needed the gift. Yes, I needed to buy some food, and I needed to buy some clothes. I needed to pay the rent. Yes, I needed those things. However, the value of what I have with you in Christ far exceeds what you have given, and his prayer is that God would credit to their account in friendly gospel terms, the benefit he had received. A couple of things that you'll pay attention to. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. A few of you support nonprofit groups, including this church, as well as other Christian radio stations and uh, universities and schools and publishing houses and uh, aid agencies. At, just a quick question, review in your mind. When was the last time you got a letter from one of these agencies say, you know what, we're good? You know, we just, we're actually, we're topped off. If you send in, we don't even know where we'd put it. We're just, we're full, actually. Uh, so, you know, if you want to support other things, um, yeah, go do that. Anybody? You got one of those letters? Paul wrote the first one, and the only one. I have received full payment and more. He said, no, I'm good. I'm squared away. Don't send any more money. Please, keep your money. 
Send it to the Corinthians just to spite them. Just, no, he didn't say that. It's terrible. So he says, listen, I have received full payment. He's saying two things. Number one, he is saying what he is saying. First of all, I have all I need. You have, in your generosity, your generosity was not in accordance with your assets. Your generosity was designed in accordance with the need. You provided what was needed. When they went to send the money to Paul in, Philippi, in, in Roman, for the love of Pete, in Rome, they didn't ask, what can we afford? They asked, what's needed? Let's figure that out. They were trusting that God would provide what is needed for themselves. And he's saying, what you have provided, it handled it. We're, we're good to go. On the other hand, he is also saying this. I see, in displayed in this action, this decision, this burden bearing with me, you have far surpassed, you have fully accounted for the connection that you and I have together. You have fully uh, supplied what is needed. Because remember, we talked in the first century, this notion of friendship was reciprocal. And what he is saying is, he wanted them to know to have the freedom to realize their friendship was properly and fully represented by their gift. He is saying, Christ in you was well represented by your action to supply my need. And that was a gift, not just merely to meet his needs, but it was a gift to see as he's sharing how valuable their friendship is to him, he is saying, and I see in your actions how, friendship, how valuable our friendship is to you. So the nature of, his, of their gift is that it fully supplied the need, and look at the nature of it in God's eyes. This is the end of verse 18. I'm well supplied. I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what he wants them to understand is the person who is going to use and spend the money is who? Paul. Paul's going to spend the money. He's going to buy bread. He's going to buy himself a cloak, maybe some parchment paper, maybe an ink, maybe a MacBook. I don't know. Something uh, to kind of make the writing go a little quicker. But what he is saying is the gift is not actually to me. The gift itself is an offering that is presented to God. And what he is saying is God is well pleased with your gospel sacrifice on behalf of another. So he's saying this is actually going before God and God's response to your gift because it's motivated by Christ himself is to take delight, to take delight in the offering that was made. So this is the purpose of worship in this context. The purpose is not to be able to mutually share each other burdens primarily, make sure if one person has a lot, the other person's taken care of, vice versa. The purpose isn't primarily to make sure Paul has what he needs. The purpose isn't primarily to make sure the Philippians have a proper view of money. The purpose is primarily what? That God would be pleased. The goal of all worship is God would go, oh, that's cool. Oh, I'm into that. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, that's something I think is it's delightful. And what Paul is telling the Philippian believers is their movement of the gospel and their resources to bear his burdens was the, the most significant part of that act of worship is it brought before God something delightful. That starts in the heart, doesn't start on a checkbook. That's a reflection of their orientation of their heart, which is yearning for Jesus, not an orientation of how much... The, uh, how much the amount is on the check that they wrote. It means their purpose is in the gospel to bear burdens with Paul. And so there is in the sharing the gospel together this great gift of help. And the gift is for Paul, he receives what he needs. And the gift for the people of Philippi is they have an opportunity to worship God in a way they can't do in any other context. And so he was full, fully supplied through their act of worship before the Lord, and the Lord was delighted uh, in it. They shared the gospel together by helping one another. They helped Paul in resource in this context. In other ways, of course, Paul helped them in their spiritual uh, journey. The other thing that Paul recognizes here is he now owes them. He now owes them in their ministry context, in their gospel friendship. Well, he has, an, he, he has a, an obligation to them now, not to pay them back financially, 
not to do whatever they say. Can you imagine Paul taking orders? Probably something he should have worked on a little bit. But he's not, they, they, they don't write a letter to him. Listen, Paul, we supported you pretty substantially. You really feel your ministry ought to look like this. He would have said, here's your money back. What he had an obligation to do was pursue their greatest benefit for all of eternity. That's what he's saying here. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So that's going to be two things. Number one, it provides him some accountability to stay on the job. Keep after it. Stay with it. People are with you in the ministry of the gospel. Stay after it till it costs you your head, which it's probably going to do in three or four years after this is written. So he says, listen, I want to keep pursuing what I'm doing because I know you're in it with me. But secondly, he's also going to continue to challenge them in their growth in the gospel. And if you want to know what that looks like, you need to go re-listen to all the messages of Philippians back to September. That's what the book is mostly about. Telling them to not forsake the gospel. Telling them to understand the, the movement of Christ in humiliation from heaven to the cross. Challenging them to know Christ and his glory through the gospel more and more each day. So he's going to seek their benefit spiritually and in the gospel. He wants them to experience an eternal reward as a response to their worship through supporting his needs. We should say this, the motivation for them supporting them, uh, supporting Paul, is not primarily that his needs would be met. Their motivation for uh, supporting Paul is a way of worshiping God who provided Christ on the cross. The goal here is that God would be pleased. The primary concern is not that Paul would have three square meals a day. Is Paul concerned about eating every day? No, just a couple of passages earlier, he says, listen, I've learned what it's like to live with lots of stuff. I've learned what it's like to, to starve and be naked. So I'm good either way. The primary goal is not that he gets three square meals a day and has a change of clothes. The goal is to worship the Lord. What does it look like for the Philippians to worship the Lord with their stuff? And what does it look like for Paul to worship the Lord in receiving help? Sharing the gospel together, the gift of help. Okay, last couple of verses here. <clears throat> Look at verse 19 and 20. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he ends this wanting to settle our hearts on the proper reference point. And the proper reference point for all gifts of time, energy, ministry, prayer, finances, all the, the reference point for all serving of others is the giver of extravagant gifts. So the reference for, to God be the glory because God will supply all our needs. What's the greatest gift God has ever given? His own son. And then Jesus dies for us, raises from the dead. We then put our faith in him to re receive forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us then that in Christ, we are heirs to the kingdom of God, Ephesians chapter 1. So what has God given us? He has given us Jesus. What did he give us in Christ? Forgiveness of sins. You have been forgiven for everything you have ever done and everything you ever will do when you put your faith in Christ. What has he given us in Christ? Victory over the grave. When we die, that's the only time we die. After that, we live forever. So he gives us eternal life. He could have stopped there. He could have given us eternal life, built a padded room in heaven, and chucked us all into it. He didn't do that. He said, you are now in Christ, so therefore, heirs to the kingdom of heaven. So, it doesn't matter how much we get rid of time, money, energy, prayer, it doesn't matter how much we unload, what do we still have? Just everything. And you say, well, eternal reward doesn't pay the bills, bro. Oh, I had no idea. Okay, boy, you stumped me on that one. Um, how long do your bills last? Anybody ever not paid a bill? Nobody's going to raise their hand. Okay, as it turns out, just, just kind of let the tension out of the room just a little bit. There's no death penalty for not paying your bills. Okay, just so you can, it's, now you can get in trouble. You should pay your bills. Get me wrong. 
you don't lose heaven if you can't afford your bills. You don't lose heaven if it seems like there's not enough. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds really strange to most of us. It sounds strange to me because most of us have been preconditioned in our life to, be, to assume the purpose of Christianity is to make this life okay. That's not the goal. The goal of a relationship with Jesus is to live forever where it's awesome. All the Christians who came before us are dead. They're, that's what happens. You die. But then what happens after that? Okay, you, we're going to have to start over. You don't know what comes after. <laughs> it's, it's forever. It's eternity. Listen, I, what, now, we got, now you got me fired up. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. How long has he been gone? A couple of days? Okay, let me put it this way, and this is silly, but I've said it before. How long did it take him to create the universe? Seven days. How long has he taken to prepare a place for us? This place is going to be nice. I mean, it's going to have like running water. No, this is going to be nice. It doesn't matter how bad your life is, and many of us, and I am not uh, being silly about it, many of us have burdens that no one could imagine. When we step across the threshold into eternity, the Bible tells us when we get there, we will have two responses. Oh, well, that wasn't that wasn't that bad, and this is more than I expected. Those will be the two things. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was, and this is greater than I could have expected. Everything Paul writes about the Christian life assumes the good stuff is there. And none of the things he's describing about Christian friendship, nothing he's describing about life and the gospel, nothing he's describing about worshiping God with our stuff works if we need to pay it off before our funeral. It all makes sense because there is something coming that we could not imagine. One of the reasons the Christian life is so hard for many of us is we think heaven is going to be lame. If we had a proper understanding of how off the chain heaven is going to be, we would be much more willing to give up all the stuff we're clinging to in this life. Heaven is not going to be lame. It is going to be the opposite of lame. Every day, new excitements to behold and experience, namely Christ himself. Okay, that was all off script, so now let's get back to it. You started it, though. It's your fault. I don't even know where it was. Sharing the gospel, gift of God. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus is what moves the one who moves in our hearts to motivate us to serve others with our stuff, with our time, with our energy, with our prayer. And the purpose of that is to serve others for his glory. When we serve others, we are just simply imitating Christ who died on the cross for us. And God will supply every need of ours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Pay attention. God will supply every need you have according to how wealthy Christ is. He is not going to supply every need you have according to how awesome you are. Thank the Lord for that. There's a whole bunch of people on the TV and the radio, and they say, if you do this, God will do this. It is a lie from Satan. God will give to you in accordance with how awesome he is, because he's awesome. Pay attention. Look what the Bible says so the next time you see it on the TV, you can, you can say, liar. And you can yell at your TV. Or just turn it off and read a book. God will supply every need of yours according to how much you give. Does it say that? No. What's it say? According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will give to you in accordance with how much stuff he has. Okay? Trying to think of an example that won't offend everybody. Try to avoid. So, you get a gift from somebody. Maybe you have a family member who's uh, on hard times. Okay, hadn't had a job for a little while, and you got a holiday coming up, and everybody's exchanging gifts, and and that person is going to give you a gift. What's your expectation? You know, a handmade card would be great. Something a little bit time, right? I mean, and and you have in your mind this person not had any money. You got to buy me a gift, right? So they're going to give me something handmade, and, I'm going to, and you're going to enjoy it. We're not, we're not saying that's a bad thing, right? Okay, but then let's say, for example, Jeff Bezos gets invited to your holiday party, and he drew your name. 
Do you know who Jeff Bezos is? Is that name doesn't ring a bell? He owns Amazon. The other day, Amazon's stock went up, what, 12% in after hours trading? He made $8 billion in 15 minutes. That's, that's doing okay. I mean, from what I hear, I mean, whatever. It's good work if you can get it. So he draws your name. If he hand makes you a card, what are you going to say? Say, really, bro? I mean, 15 minutes, you made 8 billion bucks. You fold a piece of construction paper and have him wrote on it with a crayon? I don't think so. And you give back. At least gift, Amazon gift cards. You probably got a stack of those in the car. But this, what does it say? God will supply your need according to his wealth. Jeff Bezos is a pauper compared to God. And he's saying he will provide for your needs in accordance with the glories of his riches. That's his promise. Not in accordance to your faithfulness, not in accordance to how much you give, not in accordance to your obedience, not in accordance to how awesome you are, how much you attend church or don't attend church, how much you share the gospel, in accordance with what? The glories of his riches. We are dependent on God being that kind and generous all the time because even on our best days, we're not that awesome. And he is saying... He will supply every need of ours according to his riches and glories in Christ Jesus. Cast your mind back to the Exodus wanderings. Forty years, the Israelites wandered around in the desert. If you're not familiar with the story, read the book of Exodus. Really, basically, the story is this. They wake up in the morning, they gripe and complain, and then they go to bed at night. I think that's basically Exodus. God had provided for them manna. So what it was, they'd get up in the morning and there'd be manna on the floor of the uh, desert and they'd collect it. They'd collect enough for each day for them to eat each day. That would happen every single day, except it wouldn't happen on Saturday. They were allowed on Friday night to collect twice as much. On Saturday, they got a day off. They had two jobs to eat. Get up in the morning and collect enough for that day and don't collect any more than that. And do that every day. The other job was, don't get up and collect any on the day there isn't any, which is Saturday, Sabbath right? Those are the two jobs. Get up, eat, go camping for 40 years. This is a good life. Now, as it turns out, no matter how good your food is, if you eat it every day, three squares a day, it gets a little boring. There were a number of ways you could prepare manna, but, but pretty soon there's just, it's Wednesday, it's manna mashup day, you know, whatever it is. And then Friday, okay, it's manna casserole day. I don't know what a manna casserole would be. They complained because here's, here's the thing. They had what, what we need is food, and that worked for a while. They said, no, oh, what we need is good food. When we redefine what we need based on what we believe we need, what we have done is we have told God, you and I have need to switch jobs. One of the reasons when we read this verse, we say, God will supply every need of mine. I don't think so. Haven't seen it happen yet. That's because we've redefined what we think we need. How God is going to provide for us is to give us everything that is precisely for our good and for his greatest glory, and his greatest glory is our greatest good. We read a proverb last week, and we should be reminded of it. The prayer of the proverb was, God, do not give me so little that I steal. Do not give me so much that I forget you. God will always provide what is absolutely necessary to draw us most closely to him because what we need most is to be most close to him before the day we walk across the threshold. And Paul is saying God will supply every need you have according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Sometimes he does provide that thing we need in that moment. Other times, God, by his grace, knows what we need is not to get the thing that we think we need. And the challenge of our hearts, which tends to worship what we desire, is to submit our hearts to him and allow us to understand our needs based on his point of view. Turn with me to Philippians 2.5. I'm going to read as a reminder of the... Uh, epic center of the book of Philippians before we conclude. Philippians 2.5, I'm going to read through verse 11. 
redefining for our hearts what we need is very, very, very difficult. I might suggest it's impossible absent the work of Jesus by his spirit in our heart. And this is how we begin redefining in our own hearts what need is, is by looking at the work of Jesus. Here's what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, all our needs are bound up in Christ, and one day we will be with Christ in eternity. Everything we need to get us from now to that moment, God will provide according to his glorious riches. The challenge our hearts are going to have to grapple with today and every day you and I are alive is we want to get from here to the glories of Christ as comfortably as possible. And God wants to get us from here to the glories of Christ most like Jesus as possible. Most of the time, those two goals are opposed to one another. Because most of the time, we grow to be most like Christ when we are least comfortable. And that's what God calls us to do, is say, I trust you enough, God, to supply everything I need. Sharing the gospel. Three things. The gift of friendship, gift of help, and finally, the gift of God. Three things, and then we're going to close with a closing song. Think about your friendships. And this might be a challenge for many of us, and I don't want to pick on the fellas, but probably for us guys, uh, this might be something you don't want to think about. So when, I, always, I tell you this all the time. When something really bothers me, I really feel like it's my duty to make it bother you as well. <laughs> so think through your friendships, your social connections, people you spend a little bit of time with. What is it going to take to take those friendships from just friendships with some points of commonality to friendships of the gospel? where the point of the friendship is Christ? And that's a hard question to answer, but what is it where you say, well, if all these other points of commonality, work, things we do on the weekend, things we have in common with our family, if all those things went away, would we still hang out? Are we in any way sharing life in the gospel? A couple of quick ways you can start moving down that road is when when you spend time with somebody you know, Ask them how you can be praying for them. Hey, how can I pray for you this week? And then if somebody, this is permission for you in the church, uh, all of us in the church, you know, somebody says, hey, how can I pray for you this week? Tell them. And then your gift to them is the next time you see them, ask them how that's going. You're like, oh, that's rude. You'll find out if you're friends. Say, are you praying for me? Because I, re- I really need you to pray for me. I'm not going to make it. If you don't pray for me, I'm going to pray for you. How can I be praying for you? Friendships in the gospel call one another to walk in the light and not in the darkness. Friendships in the gospel, every now and then a good friend might need to turn to another good friend and say, you know, I love what Jesus is doing in your life, and I'm really praying I see more of Jesus in this particular area of your life. And you say, well, I could never say that to somebody. You could to a friend. The problem in churches historically is the people saying that are not friends. There's some guy in a high and mighty self-righteous chair who comes walking down to tell people how they're supposed to live. It's a whole different thing when another brother puts his arm around you and says, listen, I see Jesus in your life, but there's a little spot right here. I don't see any Jesus, bro. What are we going to do about that? How can I carry that burden with you? How can you walk in the light in this area in your life? What would it look like to start moving some of your friendships to friendships that are 
friends in Christ. Not just friends you hunt with who are also Christians. Friends who are in Christ. You say, well, pick on the ladies. No, that's your job, not mine. Secondly, the gift of help. Worship is a part of every facet of our life. We worship God when we show up here on Sunday morning and we sing together. We worship God when we show up here on Sunday morning and pray together. When we show up here on Sunday morning and have conversations with people and look for ways that we can pray and know how others are doing in the Lord. We worship with God with our time. When we say, I'm going to give time both at home or in the community or in the church to serve the Lord. We worship God with our words. We worship God with our minds and with our hearts. And we worship God with our money. And we're not fair to the scripture if I don't ask this question from Philippians chapter 4 is this, what does worship with your money look like? It's a question you need to ask. You say, well, I'm going to give some money away. Okay, good for you. Now, how are you going to worship God with the rest of it? Because we worship God by giving money to things that we want to support, and that's awesome. But we also worship God with what the part that we decide to live with, and the part we pay bills with, and the part we pay rent, and the mortgage with, and the part we pay for school supplies with. And the question is, how do I worship God with that part too? What does it look like to worship God with my money? Finally, lastly, God takes great glory in meeting your needs. And one of the challenges that many of us might have is this. We don't have any needs. We were raised to be self-reliant, and to never have a problem. And if I do have a problem, I've got to handle my business and make sure nobody else knows. How in the world will I ever experience what it looks like to have others engage with me in need if I never have any needs? For many of us, you might not have financial needs, but you may have other needs. You may have needs of a lonely heart. You may have needs of a, a feeling of missing the boat. That life doesn't have purpose. You might have needs of family and relational stress you don't know what to do with. You might have needs in your marriage. You don't know how to get from where you are to where it needs to be. But the last thing you want to do is actually talk to anybody. If God's glory is most evident in your needs being met by others, how will God's glory be manifest in your life if you are that one person on planet Earth who never had a need? And the call here is to worship God by having some people in our lives that we can share with and say, you know what, I need help, and I'm not going to make it without help. And we need to challenge each other to be vulnerable and willing to share and talk with people when we have needs. And it's in this way that we can share the gospel together.